Hello, and welcome to another exciting, action-packed adventure in reading. This is Bookworms. I'm your host, Alex. And I'm Joe. And today, we are giving you a book of your choice, Joe. Yeah, one of my choices is a thriller horror called The Winter People by Jennifer McMahone. Is it McMahon or McMahone? I couldn't tell. McMahone. McMahone? Confirmed? Confirmed. Confirmed kill. All right, I was gonna make fun of you. Son of my ass. <laughs> That's a little translation from Gaelic. <laughs> so, so whenever you see that name, you can now chuckle a little bit. I refuse. I see you giggling now. <laughs> why don't you Why don't you tell us a little about this book? Why Why did you choose this book? So I chose this book because this was picked up off a whim at Barnes and Noble after I had read a couple other books about with winter in the title from people that recommended them and i saw this book i'm like i like books about winter i'll pick this one just totally random had just come out and i really thoroughly enjoyed it uh it's probably one of the first books i ever read where in my adulthood that i had truly scary moments in it and had trouble falling asleep and it was just from cover to cover a pure pleasure yeah, I wasn't scared. I'm brave. As he says with a tremble in his voice. So uh, just a reminder, this podcast does spoils uh, a lot of it. So if you haven't read this book, I highly recommend you do before you listen to this podcast. Because spoiler alert, zombies are real. They're in central Vermont, and they're your dead children. But only if you bring them back. And you let them kill somebody after the first seven days. Yeah, come to think of it, this book is uh, it gets a little convoluted in places. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But still a good read. Uh, what did you think of it, Alex? I thought it was tremendous. There was great horror. There's cliffhangers. There's action. There are compelling characters. There's very classic horror story tropes throughout this story. That story in the story. This horror... There's very classic horror tropes throughout this story that are very well done, and reading them, they don't feel like it's just a rehashing. It's it's fresh, it's exciting, and it really drives you, makes you want to keep reading it. Uh, how does this book compare to my last pick for the other thriller I had you read, The Butcher and the Wren? Well, I feel like The Butcher and the Wren would be a lot more interesting if there were uh, children getting resurrected from the dead. True statement, though I'm sure Elena could have found a way to ruin even that. Yeah, yeah, I, I think she should stick with podcasting that way. I can just not listen to her. Yeah, since you don't really listen to podcasts other than this one. Yeah, listen to it twice. It's damn good. Just gotta get those listening ratings up. Like and subscribe. <laughs> so let's get into it. Let's uh, start with a quick synopsis, and then we'll get into talking deeper into the book. So, Alex, why don't you start us off here? When does this book start? This book starts in 1908, way back when. Yeah, there are multiple timelines, primarily two, but there's a couple other timelines that we kind of jump in occasionally to give other background story. Again, much better done than Butcher and Wren. Yeah, you at least know that there are time jumps in this book. As they put the date on the start of the time jumps but yeah so we started in 1908 who yeah. are we introduced to 
So we're immediately introduced to Sarah. Sarah is writing a diary. She's in the first entry. It's like January 29th. We find out a lot about her family history and first time she ever saw ghosts, her close relationship with her aunt, and also it's let on that she has recently experienced a heavy loss and is being monitored for her mental state. Who else are we introduced to? You said her aunt, who is referred to as Auntie, who's not really an aunt by blood, but some weird convoluted situation where her mom died and this native woman kind of took yeah, auntie, the surrogate place. Yeah, Auntie essentially raised her as one of her own and is uh, also into witchcraft and researching the occult, which plays in heavily to the plot of this book. Uh, so everything that's told through Sarah's perspective is first person. Every other character we meet, their perspective is third person. We immediately meet Martin, her uh, Sarah's husband, who is essentially the you know caring for Sarah, and he's the father of Gertie, their child. He's he's an interesting character. He's sure. kind of a flub of a human being, but at the same time, you can't help but feel like you want to root for him, like you want him to. Do well, even though you know he just can't do anything right. Yeah, he's one of those guys where he just he works like a dog. He does everything in his power to be successful and provide for his family. Yet he's also just one of those guys who just never catches a break throughout this entire book, even in his pre-story all the way through to his end. He just has no luck whatsoever. Yeah, it's just pretty much you can't ask for a bigger loser but a more lovable loser. And it's like when we first meet him, like his family, they're, they don't have any money. They're on a farm. The crops have, are failing constantly. Their animals keep getting killed by foxes. Yeah, that, that's one thing interesting. Like the, the land is almost his own character. It's their, they have what's called the devil's hand, where it's a strange rock formation sticking out of the ground that looks like a black hand coming out. And... Everyone thinks the land is cursed. Yeah, the land's almost like a second antagonist in this book because it's constantly fighting all of the characters. All the characters are trying to struggle to conquer the land that they live in or the house that they live in. Uh, another big character in this is also Gertie, the daughter. And she's, what, eight years old? About that. Yeah, she's young. She only gets one point of view chapter in this whole book. And. Uh, it's an interesting one because we get that like immediate, like I said before, there are tropes in the story. We get the creepy child trope immediately from her. Just everything's so weirdly worded, and she seems to know way more than she ought to know about the secrets in the place which they live. And again, you get kind of get this. It's the land that they're on because she's not the only creepy kid that was born in that area that has this strange ability. Yeah, the area is very superstitious to begin with, and so there's constant stories about ghost sightings and things living in the woods that are not natural. So Alex, I don't know if you remember reading this, but I got a quick riddle for you. Question. Bury deep, pile on stones, yet I will dig up the bones. 
what am I? Don't cheat. You remember this? It was at the beginning of the book. Very deep pile on stones. Yet I will dig up the bones. Yet I will dig up the bones. I don't know. Memories. Memories. So kind of a, a, a good tonal for the thing, for the whole subject of the book. Because th- that's kind of one of the overall arching tropes is death and remembering those that have passed and dealing with that loss. And that, that definitely gets dealt with very heavily in this book. Especially yeah. with Gertie when she dies. And then later we'll talk about some of those deaths that get people you know, really doing stupid things and messing with the natural order of things. And basically every character is dealing with some sort of loss in this story. Which, uh, Sarah's big loss, we find out in the end of part one here, is that she loses Gertie. Gertie dies. Yeah, and it kind of, we don't know if the husband went insane and killed her, or if it was something else. But it definitely leaves it hanging there. Yeah, it's uh, hinted throughout that Martin had some sort of hand in it. Because there's this whole thing where he finds a ring, and he doesn't It's auntie's ring. Yeah, it's auntie's ring. He doesn't really know it. Sarah keeps telling him to put it back in the ground where he found it, but he doesn't do that, and then Sarah winds up dead, and later on they find the ring in her pocket. And you mean Gertie winds up dead? Yeah, Gertie winds up dead, and they find the ring in her pocket. So there's some hints that, or at least some paranoia within the story, that Martin might have been the killer, or there's some sort of malevolent spirit that killed her. Yeah, and, and Martin had been chasing after a fox that kept breaking into the hen house and murdering all their chickens which is a huge deal for them because it means basically them starving to death and he ends up tracking it all day shoots it kills it skins it hangs the really mangled skin on a nail in the barn and when he comes back it's Gertie's scalp and he can't find the ring anymore that he had left in his pocket And all he can find is basically sections of Gertie's scalp. And he's trying to hide it from Sarah because he's freaking the frig out. As one would do, who thought he killed a fox and then sees that it's transformed to your daughter's hair. And all of this has happened in the first 50 pages of the book. Yeah, it's definitely densely packed and moves at a fast pace, which... For a uh, thriller kind of book, horror book, that's definitely something really good. After that, we meet a whole new set of characters because we have a large time jump of almost 100 years. Yeah, basically present day is yeah, what they call it. Present day, which stylistically writing, that's a very clever way of doing it because it keeps the book from like getting too dated too fast. Because yeah. if it's like, like the book came out in 2014. Yeah, there's, anyway. there's some stuff that dates it. Just because technology, even in the last 10 years, has changed so drastically that you can pick it up, especially if you lived through it and you're like, hey, I remember that now that you mention it. I haven't thought about that since 2014. Yeah. But yeah, so let's uh, talk about these new set of characters, Alex. All right, so we meet Ruthie to start with. Yeah, she's our main protagonist. Our main character in this whole thing. So naturally you meet the main character 50 pages into a book all the time. Again, uh, well done. <laughs> Unlike uh, another book I picked. Yeah, I did want to point out the 
writing style in, that uh, Mick Mahone does because she's very good at establishing character relationships throughout this book really fast. So I want to read Ruthie's introductory paragraphs. Maybe we can compare it to uh, Elena's introductory paragraph of Wren. That was not well done, and this one is very well done. So first words we see, we meet Ruthie and Buzz, and it goes like this. Snowflakes were spinning, drifting, doing their own drunken pirouettes, illuminated by the headlights of Buzz's truck. The studded tires bit into the snow, but he took the corners fast enough that they fishtailed dangerously close to the high snow banks that lined the single-lane dirt roads. Turn off the lights, Ruthie said, because they were close now, and she didn't want her mother knowing she was out past curfew again. She was 19 years old. Who did her mom think she was anyway, giving Ruthie a goddamn curfew? So in just those two short paragraphs, we learn a lot about Ruthie. We get her age, we get that she's dating somebody, and we get that she has a conflict with her mother. Yeah, it makes it all interesting, and you want to learn more on all aspects. I do have to say, I kind of wish Buzz was a bigger part of the story. We were talking about it a little bit before we hit record. But Buzz initially comes off as that loser, redneck, townie that isn't going to go anywhere, no education, nothing. And then as you get to learn more about him, he ends up being probably the most solid character, best head on his shoulders out of any of one, and he just disappears. Yeah, he winds up being this really smart, insightful, helpful person, and he's this, even though he's not really much of a career guy, he's a very talented sculptor, like he makes metal sculptures out of scrap metal, and he winds up being this really cool guy, but yeah, he just disappears halfway through the book, I mean, never to be heard from again. I mean, he he did, he does like to look for aliens, and he, he we actually learned pretty quickly that he had seen a sleeper, he just thought it, it was, he saw Gertie essentially, and he thought it was an alien, one of the greys. So him and his buddies get drunk by the devil's hand looking for spaceships every weekend. Yeah, I would have loved to have learned more about him. That would have been a fun read. Yeah, I mean, you could have had a whole book just on him. But no, we got Ruthie, and Ruthie's pretty interesting. Yeah, well, Ruthie's well. definitely She's a total badass, too. He's just missed opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, she's 19, trying to find herself, wants desperately to get out of the town that she lives in, go off to college, and become her own person. But yeah, she gets home, and she realizes, hey, mom's not here. What's going on? This is strange. Mom's misreliable. She's always sitting in her chair, glaring at me, waiting for the next conflict. But she's missing. Ruthie's drunk, doesn't think much about it till the next morning, where she's still drunk but realizes mom is still missing, and her little sister Fawn is sick. And now she's in a spot of trouble. Fawn's another... She's very similar to Gertie in many ways. She's six years old, and again, just... She has a creepy doll that she carries around, seems to know way more than she ought to about the goings-ons around their house. Yeah, and none of this is ever really explained, other than she was born on the property essentially ruthie and fawn's parents moved there on a whim or what we're told initially is a whim turns out to be a little bit more complex but they raise the girls uh fawn is born there and she has kind of this uncanny ability that 
all these children, female children that are born on the property seem to have this magical attuning. Yeah. So we uh, we got Ruthie. She's trying to find herself. And we also have a, in the present day, we have a second perspective character, Catherine. Yes, a Bostonian adult woman who has lost her son and her husband. Her son several years before we meet her and her husband several months. The husband, it's kind of a mystery to her why he was where he was when he died. Because he's, again, they're from Boston, but he had suddenly took a trip to central Vermont, to this town, telling, lying to her, saying he was going to do a wedding shoot in Connecticut, I believe, or something like that. Yeah, he... Yeah. So the last thing he ever did was lie to his wife, and then he dies in a car wreck. And there's a lot of mystery behind that, because she finds out he dies in Vermont, which is nowhere near where he was supposed to be. And so she moved... Uh, Catherine moves up to Vermont to kind of be a sleuth and figure out what her husband was doing when he died. And if you think about it, you know, when you, or at least when I picture her, she would fit in perfectly in that sort of town with the lady with the, the crazy hair, doesn't quite shower or maintain everything very often. You know, typically older middle age, like th- think 40s, and just art, artiste type. Yeah, she's like an artist. She makes like miniature landscape scenes. Yeah, she, it sounds like she does all sorts of different work, but lately she's been doing the, what's the thing, the shadow boxes. Mm. And she's trying to recreate her dead husband's last movements in town, and she slowly starts to crack through the case as she finally gets out of her tiny apartment and starts exploring the town. And the, uh, all these characters, characters in the modern day are brought together through that mystery because we find out that Catherine's husband was meeting Alice, Ruthie's mother, and so Catherine's mystery lies deep with Ruthie's mystery, which Ruthie's mystery is, where's Alice? And so they're almost joined together to solve each other's mysteries. And we also meet another character named Candace, who's just a complete wacko. We have a few... As the the two young girls are searching for their mom, they just start to discover some strange secrets that they had no clue. We we learn that Ruthie had or gets strange dreams where she's with a strange woman that she refers to as mom, but has no clue who the woman is. They find some IDs of people that they've never met before, but the woman looks strangely like the woman in these dreams. They get the address down in Connecticut. And they head to Connecticut with Buzz to look these people up, find that they don't exist anymore for some reason. But they find the sister of one of the dead people, and they discover she's a total whack job. She So this woman, Candace, knows way more about Ruthie's situation than she ought to, because they had... They, supposedly haven't met but she knows Ruthie's mom's name without being told it she knows where they live she knows a lot of what's going on up there in Vermont from where she's from yeah it's just the whole situation is weird as especially as you discover more about what Candace actually does know it's like why did this woman stay silent for so long why did her ex-husband stay silent for so long because this was kind of like Thinking in modern times, you like you'd be like, how could a family member just let other family members disappear without a trace, without even looking into it, without getting police involved, that sort of stuff. 
it's almost like something you'd expect from 1908, not 2014. Especially in this part of the world, where everything is relatively smushed together, unlike, say, Montana. Well, to summarize how the book goes, it constantly bounces between 1908 and the present day, and we peel back the layers on these characters, and we find all their deep, dark, small-town secrets that are always very they're very pervasive in horror stories. Like I said, these ones, they're still pretty fresh and fun and to read and enjoyable. But we, we learn all sorts, it takes all sorts of interesting twists and turns. That it's, uh, like we learn that Sarah's father had killed Auntie in a fire, but then we find out Auntie survived the fire and had killed Gertie. Yeah, you almost feel like Auntie is a shapeshifter because she, she can almost be seen as a fox, her wolf-like dog. Yeah, she, when it's... she can see into the future. So she's very mystical. She's, so she's Native American. She came from Canada, but lives right next to the devil's hand, which just makes her even creepier. Yeah. And when it's revealed that she's still alive, like I wasn't sure whether she was one of those sleepers that was now awakened and like zombified. But no, she just survived, and she was secretly terrorizing Sarah and her family uh, yeah, for the, revenge for what her father did. Yeah, the, the realistic magic in this where you never quite know if it's magic or if it's just smoke and mirrors and th there's a lot of both which and it's very well mixed mm -hmm. and so building up to it when you finally learn what is what you, you could really go either direction. Yeah, for a lot of the supernatural stuff that happens in the story McMahon takes a almost like a Jaws approach where we never fully see the monster until the very end. And the only people who do see it are discredited in some way or another, whether their mental state's in question or they were under the influence of something or their children. So we never fully, like, is it is it a monster? Is it something different? There's, like, this whole building mystery throughout. And we find out it's a little bit of both, because Gertie does get magically resurrected. Yeah, I, I kind of look at it as, like, when I was comparing it to stuff, it was like Alfred Hitchcock-style movies. I don't know if you've seen any of those, Alex. Yeah, it's been a minute. Yeah, but it, it's always very shadows of a monster, but you never actually see it. Hence, it's definitely brings up that pressure in a whole different way that, instead of the shock value, it's just eerie. As you said earlier, the whole thing's just eerie, and you're you're always kind of on edge. And in the present day, the twists are even weirder because we find out Candace is Ruthie's aunt, and that Ruthie is not Alice's daughter. Her parents had been killed by Gertie, uh, you know, hundred years in the future, hundred years after Gertie died and came back. Yeah, Gertie. we 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 find out that the diary that we're reading from from Sarah. Well, we know from the get-go is missing pages, but all the the missing pages are the the last two clues onto bringing the dead back, and it's everything's driven by greed. All these people are trying to make a fortune off of finding what the secret is to raising the dead and bringing their loved ones back. We find out that's what Gary wanted to do because he was obsessed with his dead son. We know that Amelia, Sarah's sister, sold the diary to make a ton of money and was quite perturbed when she couldn't find the pages, the lost pages. 
And Candace wants to find the lost pages so that she can sell them because she lost custody of her son, and she wants to hire a lawyer to get him back, which kind of a convoluted way of going about it. I feel like there's easier she, she ways to make crazy. money. She is very, very crazy. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's it's all driven by by greed, which you know once you get to it, it's like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. It's a combination of greed and grief and desperation because, like we said earlier, all these characters have lost something and they're trying to process that grief and they're unable to. And they, like Catherine, wants to bring back her husband and child, and Candace wants to get her kid back, and like Sarah wanted to get her daughter back. It's all, you can kind of see beforehand, especially with Sarah, she's so obsessed with her daughter that you just know it's going to end bad, that she's not going to be able to let go. Because one of the big things with this this spell is they come back for seven days, and then you can never bring them back again. But when you start seeing Sarah and Gertie's relationship, how close they are, how they barely leave each other's sides, they're almost best friends than mother and daughter. And you just know that that seven days isn't going to be enough. And that's something she's going to try to cheat the system somehow. Granted, not the way she had planned it, but... Yeah, because Gertie ends up killing Alice. And so that oh, no, dude... No, she doesn't kill Alice. Oh, not Alice. Oh, she, uh, she ends up auntie. killing Auntie. And then that dooms Gertie to eternal life on Earth as a zombified child. Yeah, and I, I had a big note on on this because it's kind of a main sticking point is this kind of almost like a retribution for sarah for playing with forces beyond her control where she so can't handle not having gertie in life that she is now in death never gonna be able to see her daughter again because her daughter can't die again she can't leave the uh, the earthly plane so she gets her daughter for the rest of her natural life, but then she dies and her daughter is still left behind. And in the process, she's turned her daughter into a, a monster who has to kill people every once in a while for her sustenance. We find out at the end that she needs to eat meat and drink blood and all that stuff. And wild animals only satiates her for so long. And then she goes crazy and kills a person and consumes them. And then she'll be subdued for a while. We also learn that Gertie can never really grow up. She's always stuck as a child. So her whole thought process never really changes from the immediate need. It's just because of Sarah, dozens of people get murdered. And her daughters become a monster. And she still doesn't get her see her daughter in the afterlife. Which is something that's very important to Sarah. and But even more so like her family like her her husband and his brother who are very religious the whole town's very religious from that time time period yeah that's probably one of the saddest aspects of the story is sarah at the end expresses deep regret for what she has done because while she's got her daughter back physically it's not the same person that little girl that she was raising also she's sacrificed her entire life for this thing that's no longer her child because martin dies sarah is legally dead because she fakes her death and they have to survive living in caves and not living off the land and sarah has to basically haunt the town that she used to live in in order to help her child survive and also to 
make sure that nobody else makes the same mistakes that she did. She, I always felt that Sarah was kind of childish herself. Uh, she's very selfish in a lot of ways. A lot of times she needed to tell, say, Martin something, like why she needed to not be taking the, the ring or the other things from that stony field or the history of her family or of auntie that would have potentially saved his life. Yeah, Sarah has a very, like, the way she is written, like, all of her sentences are very short, declarative. They're very childlike in nature. They, she, you know, explores simple concepts. She has trouble processing difficult ideas. And kind of like we, we talked about with the Clockwork Orange, like with Alex wanting to get out of jail, so he signs up for a thing that he doesn't really think about the consequences of it. She also wants to do something. She knows what the consequences are going to be, but she still does it anyway. Yeah, and in a way, Catherine kind of mirrors her as a more uh, mature version, but she, even she's seeing the consequences of Gertie and of Candace and uh, reading the, the journal still ends up bringing her husband back, even though you kind of get a feeling it kind of just ends with her seeing him, but you get a feeling that is seven days really going to be enough? Is he going to come back and be the person she thought he was or used to be? Is he going to come back and he's like, now we need to bring our, our son back and all that stuff? Yeah, if this book had a sequel, she would probably become the antagonist of that sequel because she discovers the secrets of the diary and she uses them and perpetuates the that cycle of grief and loss and death that we find out Alice was trying to prevent by living there because she was taking care of Gertie's needs to help save everyone else from that. Yeah, we, we find out that Ruthie is loosely related to Gertie and Sarah because she's the great, 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 or whatever, grandchild of Amelia. So it kind of brings it back to the family, but it's just, again, one of those sad things where that family's cursed forever having to take care of this child. Uh, Sarah never destroyed the evidence on how to not bring sleepers back to life, so that allowed for Catherine to do it. And then so, Alice, or not, uh, yeah, uh, Alice also did not destroy well, the... Well, she, she didn't have all the stuff. She only had some of it, but... By the, t by the end, you get Fawn and Ruthie are like, no, this needs to get destroyed. They destroy it, not realizing that Catherine had photographed everything and has everything, and she's planning on selling it now to make boatloads of money. You almost hope her husband, Gary, kills her and has to live the rest of his eternity in the damnation just to keep her from doing something stupid. You know what was the most uh, ludicrous thing about this whole story? was like, Candace is, has like taken... Catherine, Ruthie, and Fawn hostage. Like, she has a gun up to them and to, like, take them to the cave and retrieve the pages. And somehow, during that time, Catherine manages to find a dead rabbit, pull out its heart for the necessary sacrifice, and then sneak off on her own to perform the ritual. Yeah, it was definitely uh, one of the weaker plot points that Gertie had to help so him dumb. leave a dead rabbit behind. Or a fox leave a dead rabbit behind. It was, it, but again, it almost came together as like, is this the land pulling its mystical stuff on it to feed the monster to to keep perpetuate? 
So yeah. again, yeah, I said that the land is almost its own character. Yeah, for the supernatural aspect with Gertie coming back as a zombie, there is a lot of other magical realism where there's something more than just natural occurrences happening. There were a couple points that did bother me. One was, have you ever heard of a K-turn? I have not. I, I'm assuming it's a three-point turn. I could kind of see how you would you know, call it a K-turn, but I've never heard that term before until the second time I read this book. I'm like, K-turn? What the fuck is a K-turn? I even uh, put the book down. <laughs> you look up to Becky and you're like, Becky, have you ever heard of this? <laughs> must must be a Vermont thing. Um, yeah, Jennifer McMahon is from Vermont, or at least lives in Vermont. The other thing that kind of bothered me was her lack of uh, knowledge on firearm laws. And I don't know if that was more of a trying to play up like the characters wouldn't know much about it. But having grown up in New Hampshire, where right next to Vermont, the the gun laws in northern New England are rather loosey-goosey, to say the least, for the people that aren't from there. And the way the, way the author was writing it was like writing it like she lived in Massachusetts or Connecticut. So it was just kind of like do a little bit more research in that. Yeah, in the more rural areas of the Northeast, it's a lot easier to obtain a firearm than in a more metropolitan area. And and just the gun culture is such that even if you don't own a gun, you tend to know a fair amount about it because you know a lot of people that own guns and do a lot with their guns, especially if you've grown up in that area. And so I just the, the naivety of Ruthie and her handling the guns that she does get and her knowledge. And again, you know, her boyfriend, Buzz, is buying Tannerite and shooting at it with his guns on weekends while he's drinking beers. Again, you, you'd think, you know, she, she's obviously surrounded by that culture. She would know more about it. So just, just a couple of minor gripes that kind of pulled me out of the story and just, like, made me want to pull my hair out if it was any longer. Hard, hard to grab, though, fortunately. Yeah, well, enjoy it while it lasts. So, yeah. Anything else you want to talk about the synopsis of the story, Alex? Or you know, I think we kind of covered it pretty well this time, haven't we? Yeah, well, I mean, our listeners are supposed to have read it, so I think you, you if you missed anything, they'll, they'll sound off in the comments. Yeah. So we'll get to some of my pre-thought questions. And I actually got some uh, good ones, because in doing the research for this podcast, I picked up on a few things that I hadn't really noticed the first time, and I probably still wouldn't have noticed in the second read-through except for reading these comments. So our first question is, the heart of the novel is to see past loved ones. What would you be willing to do for them to see them for one one week, Alex? Uh, what risks would you be willing to take to bring back a loved one from the dead? I mean, do you have anyone you've lost? Either they, they died or just like someone you'd want to have one more chance to see that you no longer get to see that where they're basically maybe not dead, but dead as far as... Not you know, dead, but dead to us. Yeah, dead to us. <laughs> well, that's a good question. It's a, it's a hard one to answer, because you got to think of, like, who would I want to see again? And is it... What what level of sacrifice would you give to take them back? But I think there has to be... When someone is gone from your life, there has to be that acceptance. Because if it's like the, oh, i give anything to see this person again, it... It's harder to get away from the, or get to move towards that recovery from grief, that processing of grief. Now, I've never, like, in this story, like, Sarah loses a child, and that's 
she's willing to give everything to get that child back and that is all that's also understandable but i think from my angle i mean everyone who's gone from my life is gone for for some reason and it's i find it's better to come to terms with that than sacrifice things to see them that one last time yeah i haven't really lost anyone like that either but having children of my own i could definitely see if i lost one of them the things that i would be willing to to do or things that i would not be willing to do now that wouldn't even would be no factor to bring them back or get revenge or whatever it took to to satisfy that need and even though i understand now that doing any of these things probably wouldn't lessen my suffering even though the, the chance that it might i would probably do it yeah and that's a theme of the book is sarah winds up regretting what she does and has to live the last 30 years of her life with that decision that she made it's still like understandable why she took that risk yeah how does it feel reading someone's diary? Did you feel like it was intrusive or just part of the story? I mean, did it feel real enough like you were reading a real diary? I don't know, for for me, it was kind of like a no factor. It just it was just part of the story. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a work of fiction. It's it, have you ever it's read, written in diary form? Have you ever read someone's actual diary, with or without them knowing? I mean, I've read. You've read your diary, and you're like, this is terrible. Yeah. I'm like, oh, who is this sad guy? Picture me in it. Um, no, I've never read someone's like diary unless it was a published work already. Okay. I plead the fifth. <laughs> what are your thoughts on the alternating timeline? And I kind of already said it, but what are your thoughts on how Mick Mahone did it better than Elena? So I enjoyed the alternating timeline. It wound up being very good and also kind of it got a little worn thin towards the end because they were doing a lot of jumping yeah in true thriller fashion every chapter ended on a cliffhanger it was just cliffhanger after cliffhanger after cliffhanger which stylistically that's very common in mystery thrillers because you want to find out what happened and it keeps you reading the next page next page next page and she does that very well but at the same time it's also exhausting because you're like you leave the characters you know like ruthie's got a gun to her head and then all of a sudden oh, we're back in 1908 yeah, and, and, and it and just if keeps you, doing like, that over and over and over and, again and, and like you pointed out first 50 pages of the book we're in 1908 second 50 pages of the book we're in the present time and it just two-thirds through it way through the book all of a sudden it went from big chunks of the story you're getting at out of each timeline to literally every chapter every three to four pages you're jumping a timeline yeah and that's a that's a common thing you'll see like they do it in movies all the time they have perspectives and then when they start coming together they perspectives get shorter and shorter and shorter as the storylines begin to merge together which is really it's really cool i made a note of that myself but it's also i think she went a little overboard with putting her characters in dangerous situations just so she can end a chapter and make you want to read the next chapter. Yeah. Uh, compared to Butcher and the Wren, I can't think of a single cliffhanger from that book 
there if there were they weren't very good it was like yeah. the 372 pages version of a cliffhanger that they always joke about yeah. where they leave a cliffhanger and then literally the next sentence or two in the next chapter it's resolved no factor it was never going to be a factor it was just okay we just needed to end a chapter at a tense point so we can start the next chapter and go a completely different direction it's kind of like what they used to do in like the like early 2000s television like breaking bad for example like always ended on a cliffhanger and then that last 10 minutes of that episode is resolved in the first 10 minutes of the next episode and then it moves on with the storyline and i think that's why that movie's or that movie, that tv show is it's difficult to binge watch because of that because it's just it's frustrating it's just like cliffhanger 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 and it just so, always gets so quickly resolved rather than, you know, you have to sit for a week and then watch the next episode. I had a sci-fi show, I think it was called Dark Matter, that I, me and Becky watched for a while. And it was literally, you'd watch an episode, the first quarter to a third of the episode was resolving the uh, previous episode. And then the, the end of it left on you know, the, the this next two-thirds basically was the next episode but literally if you just shifted everything 10 minutes you literally have resolution after at the end of every episode and it'd just be a normal show of problem solved at the end and go to the next week because they're just not they're, they're episodic they're not flowing so it didn't matter that they were tied together and it, it would get very annoying it's like okay you know now we gotta wait that week for what we were thinking we were gonna get in a one episode and then halfway through that episode you jump into a completely different episode so anyways how does the home affect alice when she moves into sarah's house do environments change people or is it something else no alice goes almost off the grid when she moves into sarah's old house like she becomes a farmer she sells eggs for extra cash but otherwise she doesn't make or spend money so like her family's always poor they're forced to live off the land rather than be part of society and it's almost like a self-imposed exile that she has put on herself when we meet her her husband's been dead for two years and she's almost completely alone and like that's a big source of contention between her and ruthie is why is you mean Alice's husband's been no her uh, her husband died when Ruthie was like five so they they've been he, dead no yeah. I thought he'd been only dead for like two years oh no, okay, yeah you're right yeah her husband yeah yeah it was their friends that died at fifteen yeah. years before yeah so yeah then that's what becomes a point of contention between Alice and Ruthie because Ruthie doesn't understand why Alice is living the life that she has chosen until we find out that she's taking care of Gertie. See, I, I kind of took it in this book where the, the land being its own character, it, it does change who they are. It being that kind of semi-mystical land where it's definitely the, the veil between worlds is thinner and it just it, it forces people to, to change. It kind of drives everyone a little insane. They're, they're, they're too far away from normal civilization, which if they were one mile away, they'd be perfectly fine. But the, the fact that they're living on this land, that the land is literally changing who they are, making is that making everyone a little bit cr crazier. 
the uh, Sarah's family is obviously all on that insanity chart between her father and then Sarah. Martin, who moves there, goes from just kind of that love-struck boy to this guy that can see himself just going insane slowly over the years. And at the the peak of it, he just he has no clue what reality is anymore. And when Alice moves there, obviously we we learn at the the end that she's been taking care of Gertie, and her being kidnapped by Gertie is that that childish impulse. But how many people would actually say, "Hey, let's this sounds like a great idea. Let's just move here and take care of this zombie child," and then not kind of slowly go insane, you know? So as I said, you know, just that the land is almost its own character and, and it is affecting the people as much as the other characters are affecting each other. Okay, so this is kind of one of the things. So Jennifer McMahon is a bit of a feminist author. I never picked it up in this story initially because she did it so well, but reading some of her other works, not quite as well blended in as this one. But there are many different kinds of strong female characters in the story. What does each successive generation teach to the next in becoming a fulfilled woman? If you want me to go first, I can. Yeah, go ahead. So I, I kind of felt that, you know, this is one of the questions I pulled off the internet. Uh, I kind of felt that they're almost hurting each other, each generation. They're not allowing the the girls, as they become women, to actually be able to grow up and basically spread their wings and do what they want to do and they're being tied to the land having to make sacrifices for the previous generation's bad decisions especially with Alice and Ruthie Alice goes to this land finds Gertie decides she has to be Gertie's caretaker and basically just drops it on Ruth you can never leave here again because Gertie needs you and she can never grow up and Fawn's going to be in the same similar boat too. And when they're reading about Sarah, she's the original, you know, sinner kind of sticking them with this whole problem. And basically they, they just they can never fully develop as a as a person anymore. They're just they're, they're kind of stuck in this rut. I think with Ruthie, it becomes it starts off where Alice does not want her to go to college, forces her to take a gap year and Ruthie is trying to rebel against that because she wants nothing more than a good way. But in the end, she chooses to stay. So she, in her own way, reclaims that power dynamic where it's her choice to stay. She's going to stay. Whether it's a choice she's happy with or a choice she originally wanted, you know, that's different. But by the end of the story, she is able to make that decision on her own to to stay which gives it does it, that does give her the power it's when you word it the way i'm wording it like it doesn't sound like it's much of a thing but having that but, ability but, to choose is but but does she really get to make that decision you know, her mom stepmom whatever you want to mm-hmm. call alice kind of guilts her into it says i can't keep doing this and if i fail other people in town are gonna die so you got to do this and Ruthie, yeah, she, Ruthie says, I don't want other people to die. I don't, no one else can do this but me. Yeah, it's not a great choice, but, but she so, is the one who makes that decision in the end. Well, so, I would so say, say, that, say, say our mom came up, said, Alex, you got to live with me for the rest of your life, or else 
this weird being is going to go over and kill all of our neighbors, are you going to be like, fuck you, mom? Or are you going to be like, fine? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, mean, I don't know her neighbors. Ruthie doesn't really know a lot of her neighbors either because she's been kept apart from all of them. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know my neighbors, but I do know my mom, so the answer is no. <laughs> Love you, mom. Um, now, it's not a good thing, and there's also, that they have the sins of the father in this in instance, though it's more sins of the mother, because they're having to maintain the mess that someone in there from 100 years ago made, and they are, they're forced to deal with that in one way or another. So, yeah, she does make that choice. She does make it on her own it's not an easy choice or it's not an easy choice at all and now beyond that though yeah it's it's hard to it's hard to say there's a there's a lot of guilt there's a lot of pain there's a lot of loss that drove that decision in the end that ruthie made okay martin cherishes sarah does she love him back in equal measures or does she or does him being an outsider make that impossible it was, it's like cute in the beginning because like Sarah's when they first meet like Sarah has this like future vision of them being together and then they are together I think she does love and adore Martin her decision in the end you know results in Martin's death because well, she shoots Martin but he survives that and then he dies by suicide so uh, she loves him but she also gets him killed and she chooses to re resurrect Gertie rather than be with her husband in the end. So I don't think that whereas Martin Gertie dies and his you know his focus is on taking care of Sarah whereas Sarah does not take care of Martin. Martin's kind of the person who takes care of her for and not it's not that mutual mutual like team that a couple should be. Yeah, I, I kind of gather that you know, as I said earlier Sarah is very selfish. It's all about her right then and there. And, yeah, in the, the beginning, she's like, I'm going to marry you someday. You're the one. And Martin is that gullible boy that doesn't really have any friends, kind of follows Big Brother around in a shadow. And he just, this is the first girl that's ever talked to him, so he becomes totally smitten with her. And he's like, yeah, whatever you want. And in the book, it feels kind of like you know, pathetic. Martin just is, comes off as this kind of a loser that can't get it get out of his own way but in a way you, you, you kind of dislike sarah too because she clearly has no feelings for him later and she's truly believing that martin is the one that killed their daughter and is and neither of them can ever kind of come together and even talk about it they just they're too busy blaming each other so i i, I think martin martin was willing to forgive his wife if they murdered, if she had murdered Gertie, which just tells you how devoted he was to a fault, where Sarah was like, I will, if he killed Gertie, I'm gonna kill him and torture him and do everything I can to take my anger out on him, and then bring Gertie back to me, my precious Gertie, and because I need my Gertie, it's not even so much that Gertie necessarily wants to be back; it's Sarah needs Gertie back, not, not like Gertie's like. I want Gertie to grow up and to be older. It's like, oh, I need Gertie because otherwise I have nobody. Anything else on that one? No, that's all I got. How did you react to Gertie's hunger? What is its significance to the maternal women who must care for her? 
So, I mean, you know, obviously not surprising. She's a zombie, so she wants to eat human flesh. That, that kind of goes with the territory. Yeah, it goes hand in hand. Yeah, surprise, no one ever really considers trying to find a way to destroy Gertie. It's always, I need, this is something that needs to be cared for and nurtured, even though Gertie's going to outlive all of them. And it's clearly the little mental capacity she does have. She's not a happy creature. It, she lives in a cave. She has to eat human flesh. Her She's outlived her entire family. And she can't communicate outside of some ba- very basic writing. I think I think it's interesting that rather than try and destroy that creature, that they feel compelled to kind of sacrifice their lives to meet its needs. Well, I mean, if you you mess up on trying to kill Gertie, you're pretty much guaranteeing your death now. So I can kind of see why it's like, yeah, let's take the easy route and just sacrifice our lives instead of take the the big risk. I I was kind of wondering is because it kind of the book kind of made it sound like she needed blood, human blood. And that could have just been more of a they don't really know they, other than she just consumes the bodies, but in modern times would donor blood kind of satiate her, you know, either the women getting IV needles and donating their blood or finding like a blood bank and giving Gertie a whole plethora of different options of different kinds of people to to enjoy off of. Or if it would have to be, you know, you have to kill somebody to satiate that hunger. Yeah, it's hard to say. Just the obviously they're in rural Vermont, so, you know, finding uh having access to a supply of like a blood bank, it's gonna be hard to do, especially because like they're not doctors, they're not uh, clinicians of any sort, they're farmers. So they used, you know, livestock and wild animals that they're able to catch, rather than finding alternative ways of harvesting human blood. Yeah, I mean, again, enough women that know about this now, and you could say, okay, every couple of months, we all hand over a pint or a couple of pints, and that, that's definitely something you could get away with. With you know, again, Ruthie is wanting to go to college. This is something that she could tell, definitely kind of look into for a more sustainable long term i do feel like ruthie could have gone like she didn't have to make that decision this day she could have gone to college and come back and found like help find a way it's kind of like what my college my college uh career ended the same way it began on my parents couch (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i you know i guess like again this is another question i kind of pulled off the internet and i think they're kind of going for the whole menstrual blood thing because doing the whole maternal woman thing and the, the question and how it kind of comes in cycles and again you know it's something that if the woman's every month visiting Gertie for a few days out of, out of that month and she can smell the blood on them and her brain is kind of going into overdrive like Ooh, I'm hungry no that that red no, white-tailed deer ain't gonna do nothing for me today yeah there is something to that yeah. So, how was this book as a horror thriller book? Was it scary? Was the magical realism done well? Uh, yeah, it was very scary. I think it worked. I know you were talking about it was very scary. I, I made a joke about how brave I was. But uh, I liked the thriller aspects. One of the... Give me a chance here to go into one of the themes I noticed is uh, all the characters, Sarah and Gertie and also Ruthie and Fawn, they play hide-and-seek a lot. Uh, which 
really fits into the whole theme of the book because there there's portion there's always somebody looking for somebody else throughout this whole story that's like what drives the mystery like they're looking for alice or in the beginning of the book they're looking for gertie because she's missing oh, and then did they... you find it strange that ruthie didn't know the name of her mom <laughs> yeah it's a little interesting yeah i mean i mean what my children know my and becky's names and i know we, we knew our parents names relatively early it's just one of those things that really 19 years it never came up <laughs> it was always just hey mom 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 yeah normally yeah normally after you, you find out pretty quick like if you're you know six you might not know your mom's name it's always mom but yeah 19 you should probably know your mom's <laughs> name um, I, I would think she would have filled out enough paperwork to have to have known her mom's name by then well i mean i, I knew my mom's name but i uh i found out in like fifth grade i didn't know how to spell my mom's name because i tried forging her signature <laughs> and i spelled her name wrong but it, <laughs> yeah i mean granted you know she spells a little differently than what you would expect but <laughs> come yeah. on alex <laughs> i know shame on me but yeah like they're always they're always looking for something or they're looking for a way to bring back like Catherine's looking for a way to bring back her husband or you know sarah's trying to bring G- gertie back obviously and you know, trying to find alice like hide and seek plays a huge role in this and it's it's what it drives the mystery. It's what drives a lot of the horror behind the story, and it's all really well done. And it couples together well with the, you know, the creepy dolls and the the weird children and the mystical aspects of it all. And I love how with a lot of those mystical aspects, you don't know until the very end if it's going to be real or not. And it's that whole. It could be either one up until it's confirmed one way or another, and it's it's funny because it kind of splits it down the middle. Like there's no like true winter people or sleepers or creatures in the woods. It's you know 1908. It's Auntie just watching and like driven crazy by revenge, doing all these things. But then they do have a supernatural being with Gertie, and that drives horror the horror aspects in the present day portion of the stories because Gertie's killing people in the modern era and there are people that are trying to maintain that secret so yes it's very well done there's a lot of great mystery and thriller overdoes it on the cliffhangers but otherwise it's uh, it all ties together quite well sounds good so conclusions uh, my conclusions for this book now, overall you know, having read this a second time it was still a lot of fun Rereading a suspense thriller novel can be difficult because you basically know the ending and it, it takes a lot of that that suspense out, obviously, a lot of that the mystery out. But this is well and well, well enough that it's totally worth it. It does a lot of draw on a lot of thriller and horror tropes, uh, Alfred Hitchcock style sort of way, but they're well done. They're not overdone so much other than like alex just said the cliffhangers got a little redundant at the end everything the chapters were just a little too short to keep it fresh the magical system in this was done with the lightest of touches you never really knew what was magic and what was just smoke and mirrors until the very end Uh, on the second read through i definitely saw some more flaws in the book fucking k-turns it's a, just a three-point turn i mean come on people yeah 
Anyways, uh... <laughs> what if it's three-point turn here and K-turns, like, everywhere else in the world? Yeah, but this is Vermont. Uh, we're, we're, we're not talking, like, gotta go know, state South by state. America. We're going to go state by state, country by country. We want comments. Does anyone refer to it as a K-turn? Or does the world just call it like we would call it a three-point turn? Be like what I would joke about with Elena Urquhart. Like, she's never seen Shawshank Redemption. And then, like, watch them describe a K-turn. I'm like, you don't know what the letter K looks like, do you? <laughs> well, yeah, it's just... Yeah, so it's just little flaws like that that kind of detracted from it. And again, I think a lot of it's in preparing for the podcast, reading for the podcast, I'm taking constant notes. I'm not just reading through. Alex, I do want you to notice on this book, because you've made fun of me for all the uh, tabs I put into my books. This one, I did none. It was a first edition, and I just felt too guilty uh, putting all 100 million tabs in, in the book. I, I couldn't bring myself to highlight it or anything. Yeah, and the, the only other problem I had with the book was Buzz disappearing in the second half. I thought he brought a interesting dynamic to the story, and he could have got what the, the, the story was a uh, about, again, reading on the internet, a, a kind of a feminist story, but he, he was kind of like that redemptive male figure when all these other male figures failed these women, and that could have kind of set it like a, a change in the, the, the future story of... Now it's not just on a woman's shoulders. Now everyone's sharing the burden. Yeah, I mean, there's only that one. Martin's the only male character, really, in the story because everyone else is either dead or gone. So it would have been cool to see more of Buzz. Kind of thinking about it, like comparing it to uh, Coldest Girl in Cold Town, where you think Tana's uh, ex-boyfriend there, I forget his name, but... You, like you think he's gonna be a bigger part of the story, but Aiden. That, yeah, yeah. But, but Aiden, and then he just he becomes a vampire, and then his storyline is essentially over. He doesn't do much of anything else. Yeah, and it's a, just definitely a, a flaw in the book. But I so I I love this book. Yeah, this is it's, I think I in Goodreads I put it on as four stars, but I said I definitely enjoy it. So yeah, I gave it four stars as well. It's very well done. It's it's a good horror story. Okay, and my thesis question here is. How does this story enhance and advance the different genres that it covers? So the thriller, suspense, horror, then also kind of the, the feminist genre, too, as I've been saying. It definitely draws on that also. So it it reaffirms a lot of the... We keep saying it's almost becoming a trope itself, but it keeps reaffirming a lot of the popular horror story and thriller tropes, the cliffhangers, the creepy children, the all that good stuff they and it shows that those are still relevant they're not well worn and they're still unique and interesting ways that you can utilize them in your writing and winter people does that very well like and the uh as far as you know talking about feminist literature like all the female characters they are huh. here's a question do you even realize it could be considered feminist literature um, you, I didn't read it. read it as feminist literature. I just read it as a horror story. But but you said you know without it being pointed out to you, would you have even known? I well, I didn't do really any thinking in that along that line of how does this work for gendered storytelling? 
I think the characters themselves were, regardless of what gender they were, they were interesting, they were fully fleshed out, they were complicated, and they all had deep flaws that they were trying to work with, which makes for entertaining reading. So if it's trying to be, talk about, or if it's trying to express gender-styled writing, it made for a very entertaining foray into that, even if to the point where I just enjoyed reading it. Like, it didn't matter about the genders of the characters. It was just fun to see. And for me, as a feminist novel, it has a very light touch in that, very elegantly done. I completely missed it my first read-through. I probably would have missed it again unless if I had... Except for that, I looked was looking up questions, and that was a very big topic on the the interwebs on you know how this is a feminist piece of literature. As far as feminist literature goes, you've read The Power, right, Alex? Yeah. Where it kind of just bludgeons you on the head. Anyway, what, what overall well done story, mm-hmm. but yeah, you know, it's just it very okay. you know overhanded on the the feminism. Where you get something like The Handmaid's Tale, where it's a lot more elegant, but yeah, still very heavily in that direction of... Yeah, yeah The Handmaid's Tale is very in-your-face about it yeah, also, but, but it, that's... Um, I, and we're, we're, we're talking the, 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 the book, tale. not the... Not the, the show. Not the, the show. But it's a, you, know, it's a, you, know, you, you know it's there, you know it's coming, but the way they, it's dealt with, it. I mean, the, the story is an amazing story. And that's yeah. a testament to Margaret Atwood, because she's one of the big feminist writers, and she's able to get her points across and also tell an entertaining story yeah that's why she's one of my favorite writers yeah and then then you have uh this one where it says you can almost don't even need it you go from a uh a bludgeon on the head with a power say a samurai sword fight with margaret atwood where it's just watching a couple of pro sword fighters you know almost dancing with each other and then you get this where it's like a fencing match where you barely even notice that a score's been hit on the, the the marker, but you're just you know someone says, oh yeah, that's that's a point towards feminism, and it's like really okay, great, you know this is just a fun thing to be watching, and I I think the the nuance into that was well done, where it, it just it doesn't read into it or not, it it doesn't change the story. As for the the thriller horror aspects, so I think this is kind of an homage to. Alfred Hitchcock and uh, his version of how horrors are supposed to work, how the, uh, in, especially in the movie industry, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, how a lot of horror movies were done where it was less shock value and more suspense. You know, tensions are just raised throughout the whole whole book. Characters' fears are brought to life. And while maybe it's not pushing that genre to new heights, it's definitely, like Alex said, showing that, the uh, or the, the the old tropes they're not overdone yet. You can still bring these back and do if you're done well, make a fantastic story. Because I was reading, I wasn't like, I didn't go like oh, another creepy child. I was like, well, this child's creepy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's not just creepy child, but like the the rock formation of the devil's hand and portals to another world, and so just just the the whole thing flowed together. Well, well crafted, and it definitely kept the the genre fresh. So that is the Winter People by Jennifer McMahon. Anything else you want to add to Alex? Yeah, it's good stuff. Okay. Yeah, excellent. Good thoughts. 
if you didn't read it before listening to this, well, you don't need to anymore. Yeah, we, we thoroughly cover these things <laughs> pretty well, don't we? Beat it to death. And then brought it back as a zombie. Yeah, like a and dead had horse. It, had to kill somebody within seven days. It's going to stick with you forever now. Yeah. yeah. And your children's children. So they, they can uh, curse your name at night. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what's our next book, Alex? This ah, is yes. your choice. This is my choice. We're going to get into a real book this time. Uh, so we got Halloween coming up. It's going to be spooky months when we drop this one on you. Uh, the next Just so you know, when we record these, it's not even close. So, <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah, behind the curtains, it's not even summer yet. But uh, <laughs> uh, The book we are going to be doing is one of my favorite mashups of genres, horror and comedy. Love myself some good old horror comedy. We are doing John Dies at the End by Jason Pargan better known by his former pen name, David Wong. Yeah, so this is a book I've already read also. Let's get into my thoughts next month. Alex, why don't you just give a quick you know, reason why this is the book that we're doing for this, this month's reading. Uh-huh. Other than just, it's Halloween. <laughs> so well, it's... I've been a big fan of David Wong for a while now. Uh, John Dysonman was my introduction to this author. If you don't know much about him, he used to be like the head editor for Cracked.com. Not really high praise these days, but uh, it was good when he was part of it. The uh, And he's got this wonderful sense of humor. He just incorporates uh, silly situations, uh, pop culture references, and just makes this whole zany thing while mixing it all together with like Lovecraftian horror and uh, just really unique ideas that build off of that and it, yeah. it makes yeah. for it makes for fun just kind of a wild ride yeah, get ready for poop and dick jokes <laughs> <laughs> that that's the kind of high uh highbrow highbrow that we go for here so yeah so that'll be our next book a little quick announcement if you're still listening here i know it's been a while but we are also hoping to get some bonus episodes out so where we will either answer questions or comments that you leave us so definitely be hopping on to the websites and or our email and getting a hold of us letting us know what you think yeah, uh, rate us on itunes on. yeah we're gonna get some special guests on here that want to talk some books we might have just random books that we read and discuss like we do now but we don't give you any f- warning about because these are just books that don't or we don't feel like you, know, you need to read, but are definitely worth reading. And uh, maybe just some rambling episodes where we just talk about random things book-related. So definitely subscribe so you can stay up to date with whenever we put something out. But if not, we'll see you again next month. Yeah. Until well, next time. Yeah. So email is kendallbookworms at gmail.com. Find us on any of the, the pod chasers. Subscribe, as I said. Uh, like, rate, write reviews. We have an Instagram at Kendall Bookworms. And, yeah, I think that's all of our things that we we have right now. For now, anyway. For now. Going worldwide, baby. Yeah. So. Yeah, well, until next time, I'm Alex. And I'm Joe. And this has been Bookworms. <laughs>